The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Jay Sifford's passion for crafting immersive gardens that are full of magic and story guide his garden designs. In this episode 56, Cornerstones of a Great Garden, we will discover how Mary Poppins inspires and nurtures a space where reality and fantasy collide. Sifford explains how to use psychological, philosophical, and spiritual principles to create contemporary, Asian-inspired, and woodland gardens with common plants and authentic materials. His inspiring gardens have been featured in Southern Living, Fine Gardening, and Country Gardens Magazine, as well as several books and on house. In 2021, he was named North Carolina's Most Outstanding Landscape Designer by Lux Life Magazine. Additionally, he has won Best of House Awards for both design and service in 2020 through 2022. You will want to listen all the way to the end to hear Jay's Garden Transforming Fern Insights. This is episode 56, Cornerstones of a Great Garden, with Jay Sifford on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Jay, what are the cornerstones you use to design and build a great garden? I believe that a great garden is built on a lot more than a collection of plants. When I design a garden, the four cornerstones that I use are art, magic, story, and then horticulture. Most people think of plants being first in the garden. I actually put it last because I believe a garden is a stylized or an imitation of nature. And the reason it's stylized is so that we can connect with it. Birds, pollinators, bees don't really care whether it's stylized or not. You can scatter a bunch of seeds out in the yard and they're happy with that. The pollen is the same. But I think that in order for us to connect, that we need some sort of order. That's what those cornerstones are really for. The first one, art, I believe that has to be artistic in some way, and that relates back to the style. If it isn't pleasing to our eyes, we don't want to spend time there. Our eyes follow candy, you know, uh, just like the term eye candy. And so it has to be pleasant to the eye. Second, magic. I think that magic kind of connects with our inner child. My working definition of magic is when something is much greater than the sum of all of its parts. Third cornerstone story. I believe that every piece of land, every person, every house has a story to tell. Gardening is a tremendous vehicle to tell those stories. And then horticulture. Garden has plants, usually, although I have been to one garden before that had no plants. Typically, we think a garden with plants. A garden, especially if you use native plants, responds and tells the story of the land. 
my garden up here in the mountains, for example, it's a stylized meadow in the front and the back is pretty much natural. So I have introduced different elements back there to kind of complement the story as you walk through it. The reason I bought this property is that there are about 500 native rhododendron maximum on the property. And one of the largest ones is right in the middle of the pathway. And instead of cutting it down, which would have hurt my heart, I force you to step over it. So just the physical act of actually encountering the reason that I bought this property tells that story. I think with homes, there should be a definite connection between gardens and architecture. If the house has a specific architectural style, it's important to pull that out into the garden. In the case of Roadwood here, my house is a dog trot, which is two separate sides with a breezeway in the middle and a common roof. And they actually built that style of house up here about 300 years ago. The history and the story of the house relates to the story of the land. Dog Trot actually got its name because of the covered breezeway that runs through the middle of the house. When your dog got hot in the summer, he would trot into the dog trot to cool down. It's amazing how naturally ventilating that breezeway is. Even when you can't feel any breeze outside, you can always feel a breeze inside the dog trot. So it really works. I've heard you relate a garden as a musical composition or a choreographed dance. What do you mean by that? It gets back to being stylized, to relating to how we think as far as being attractive to our eyes. I think that a garden really encompasses all the senses. Real sensory garden is sensual, and I don't mean that in a sexual way, obviously, but it appeals to our senses. So when you think about a garden as a musical composition, you think of staccato, you think of melody think of refrain, you think of verses. A lot of people plant shrubs, for example, in a very staccato manner. They'll line up boxwoods and print them into nice little balls along the front of the house. And it's kind of like da-da-da-da. And the eye doesn't flow through that. When you see that staccato, your eye stops, which is sometimes good if you do it meaningfully, but most people don't do it meaningfully. If you think about a melody, about how it flows, your garden should flow in that same way. And that's what makes a garden feel peaceful and tranquil to people. As far as choreographed dance, pretty much the same thing. There should be a life to the garden. There should be spontaneity to the garden. If a garden is properly planned, you don't necessarily see all of the planning that goes behind it, but it flows like a musical composition or like a dance. Could you give us an example of how you've done that? The main way I do it is with masses of plants or drifts of plants. I always tell people, why plant three ferns when you could plant 500 ferns? Because when you plant multiples of something, it doesn't necessarily have to be 500. The eye reads that as one thing instead of 500 little things. When you do your masses, if you curve them properly, you weave them in and out of trees, it's really like a musical score because your eye follows that line. I'm a firm believer in the power of line. Certain lines really appeal to our eyes. The serpentine line, for example, is very pleasing to our eye. We follow that serpentine line. If you think about the old snake charmers, people were mesmerized by that. Straight lines are okay in a formal or a very contemporary garden. Diagonal lines are very jarring to the way we think, and I try to avoid diagonal lines most of the time. Circles and spheres are very relaxing and nurturing. I think it goes back to when we were in the womb and all of our needs were met and we didn't have to pay taxes or any of that kind of stuff that we do now. Lines are important. So when you use lines properly, the garden flows just like the musical score or the choreographed dance. Would you talk about creativity and how that relates to the garden? Creativity is like morphine in my veins. Creativity is sort of the life force. I believe that creativity is sort of like a big sea. 
we can dip our toes or we can jump into that sea or that ocean when we want to. And I think we can feed our creativity. I address a new garden design. I try to be as creative as I can. I think of all the different ideas that I possibly can, and then I narrow them down later because I think people hire me to be different, to go above and beyond and as far as I can uh, within reason, of course. They actually hired me to be kind of eccentric too. <laughs> I think that they, uh, they sort of anticipate that I'll be eccentric. Creativity is sort of the life force. So why do things like everybody else does things when you can do them differently? And I can give you an example of that. Most people will have an arbor at the beginning of a garden, say in their backyard, and they'll plant some clematis on it, or maybe if they're real daring, some Confederate jasmine. But why not do something really exciting with that? Because really, that's your garden interest. And just like psychologists tell us that we have about seven seconds to make an impression, good or bad, if we go to a party, your garden has about that same amount of time to make either a good or a bad initial impression. So do something different. Be creative. Here I have a stainless steel portal. It looks kind of like a metal detector that people have to walk through, but it's different. My garden in Charlotte, I have trained a Cascade Falls weeping taxodium bald cypress over a freeform arbor that I built out of rebar. And it's the most celebrated part of my garden because when you walk through it, some of the branches hang down and, and you part the branches. And it's kind of like those strings of beads in the 1960s that they put in their doorways and you kind of walk through. In other words, why do something the same as everybody else when you can do something different? If you're not normally creative, I think that you can start reading books. It doesn't have to be a book about garden design. It can be a book about interior design or architecture. What I've found is if you feed yourself with creativity, it will stir up the creativity that is already in you. And it doesn't even have to be the same type of creativity because we're all drawing from that same ocean. How does creativity differ from design? Creativity is the fuel behind design. It's the spirit behind design. Design can be very mechanical. When I design, I don't use CAD. I sit down with a ruler and some colored pencils and some vellum paper. And that's the mechanical part of it. But the creativity is the spirit or the muse behind it. <clears throat> How does that all work into developing a style? I think we all have a different style because we all see the world differently. A lot of people try to copy somebody else's style, or if they don't know what their style is, they'll go to a home improvement television show and decide they've got an ugly old sofa, so they're going to throw a bright red pillow on it so it'll pop. That's not really developing your style. I think that you can begin to pay attention to what colors and textures and shapes and sizes that you're drawn to. Once you realize what you're drawn to, you sort of naturally tend to eliminate those things that you're not drawn to. That's how you develop a style. I'm known for creating very textural gardens, and I use a lot of color, which is almost strange to me because I don't think of myself as really being attracted to color. I'm more attracted to texture. I use a lot of color in foliage rather than in flowers because, you know, I love peonies and irises and they're blooming this time of year. A week and a half is what you get out of those things. But if you have a blue-needled conifer or you have a burgundy loripetalum or European beech, that color is pretty much with you from spring to fall. Find what you're attracted to. If you're attracted to red, go with red. You'll need some dark green to kind of calm it down a little bit because dark green is a very relaxing color and it recedes and it's a good backdrop for other things. Most people try to live on the safe side and plant a lot of dark green in a garden. When you walk down a street, you can kind of tell the creativity of the people that live in each house by how much dark green they have in their garden. Dark green is good to break up the color. If you don't have it, kind of like Vegas gone bad. 
Nobody wants that look in their garden, I don't think. But using too much of it is kind of boring and it's predictable and it's mundane and it's pedestrian. Develop your style. If you're attracted to conifers, go with a conifer garden. If you're attracted to rock gardens, do that. Everybody's style is different. And I think that the key to finding your style is just to pay attention to what you're drawn to and what you're drawn away from. How would you define your style? My style is very sculptural. That's why I like Japanese maples and conifers, because they all have a very interesting and frequently unique structure. I tell people that I love weeping and contorted and prostrate trees. Basically, I tell them that I love any tree that raises arthritis to an art form. So the more contorted and prostrate and funky it is, I'm probably going to like it. Texture is really important to me and foliage color. I do like minimalistic gardens, but I find it difficult to have one for myself because I tend to love plants too much. And it's easier for me to edit for somebody else than it is for myself. But even with minimalistic gardens, I make a real distinction between minimalistic and sparse because a minimalistic garden can be filled with plants, but maybe just three or five different kinds. You find what you're drawn to and then you sort of distill A lot of people feel like more is better, but I think that when you get to a certain point in developing your style, editing and the process of distillation down to the bare core is really important because that's where you'll find your joy. That's where you'll find what's important to you. And ultimately, that's where your style is. When you're editing, you're talking about editing the plant palette where you have minimal amount of plants. I'm talking about editing anything that's not necessary for the composition. So it could be editing the number of plants, but typically it's editing the number of different plants. Or it can be editing sculptures. I have a friend named Pat who goes to the Goodwill on Senior Citizens Discount Day and she'll buy all this yard art and it's resin tabby cats and little gnomes and all this kind of stuff. She brings it home and then about once a year, a friend of hers comes over and takes it all back. And that's editing. And then Pat goes and buys it back throughout the next 12 months, distilling things down to the core. It's like good balsamic vinegar. You've got red wine vinegar and you've got balsamic vinegar. But the really best balsamic vinegar is the stuff that's just distilled down to where it's a very thick syrup. That's what's important in a garden and in developing your style. Minimalistic garden, when I hear that, I think of more the modern type architecture or just a few plants here and there. Do you see that style surviving the test of time or is it just something as a passing fad? I think it's sort of a passing fad. When I think of what you're describing as minimalistic, I describe it as sparse. And my mental image of when you describe that is it's a garden with three cacti in it. There's a cacti here and then there's a bunch of rocks and there's another cacti way over there. Or in the southeast where we don't really grow too many cacti, people like to use mulch. They'll put up a shrub and then three feet away another shrub and then there's a bunch of mulch. I don't particularly like to look at mulch in my garden or the gardens I design. We mulched in the beginning just for the plant health and to make it look nice for the client. But I always tell people if they want to see a lot of mulch, go to the Home Depot because they've got bags and bags and bags of mulch. You're not going to find a whole lot of mulch in the gardens that I create. There are too many wonderful things to take the place. It can be a low ground cover, but if it's the same ground cover that's used throughout an acre garden with other plants interspersed, I still consider that a minimalistic garden, even though it's not sparse, because you're distilling down the variety of different plants that you have. What type of plants do you like to use for that ground cover? I would say it really depends. They call me Mr. Fern at one of the wholesale nurseries where I shop frequently. I walk in, how many ferns are you going to buy today? They get a woodland garden. There's nothing better than ferns. Why plant three when you can plant 500? It reads one mass, basically. 
In a sunnier garden, I like to use some of the shorter grasses or carex. Even in the shade, things like Everolo carex, I probably use eight or 10,000 of those a year in my designs. It's a very beautiful carpet. If you've got a sunnier area, you can use some of the low-grown juniper, horizontalis, or confertis, or nice ground covers, or again, some of the lower grasses. Basically, think of a garden in that way as a living room full of different furniture. So maybe you're a furniture collector. You have some Queen Anne antiques and some mid-century modern and some Asian pieces. What'll knit that together is the carpet that's on the floor. If you think about ground cover is the carpet on the floor that knits together the composition of different elements, then I think you've got something to go on there. Heard it said, you probably have too, that rules are made to be broken. What do you think about that? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I'm self-taught. So I've read a lot, talked to a lot of people. I'm sort of glad I didn't go to landscape architecture school because I'd be designing parking lots, I'm pretty sure. It's important to know the rules, but if you just follow the rules, the garden can be very predictable. And a garden is too predictable. It takes the magic out of the garden. Magic is one of the four cornerstones that I use in designing a garden. Predictability isn't always good. People talk about, oh, you've got to plan in threes or fives. I usually do that because it's pleasing to the eye. Now and then I'll just throw in a two or a four just to mess with people's minds a little bit because it's fun and they don't expect it. And it also makes them think, well, why did he do that? I did it to mess with your mind so you'd pay attention to the garden. How do you manipulate your audience's mood in the garden? Garden that doesn't elicit certain moods in someone, I think, is just a collection of plants. I'm really big on the term juxtaposition or defined as comparison contrast. I break juxtaposition down in four different parameters or four different variables, and those are size, shape, color, and texture. You can manipulate those four parameters of size, shape, color, and texture to cause people to experience whatever they want to experience, feel whatever they want to feel in a garden. When I meet with new prospective clients, I ask them, how do you want to feel in your garden? Do you want to feel happy or relaxed or contemplative or philosophical or creative or humble or whatever it is? And you can manipulate those four different variables to create that. A prime example of that, I think, is probably 15 years ago, I dug out a portion in my front garden in Charlotte, built a stack stone seating wall. And then behind it, I planted all these big leaf plants. I planted acanthus and some in substance hosta and some of the Chinese podophyllums, the maples that I collect. And what I noticed was when I would sit down there, I started having all of these mostly happy childhood memories come back to me, things I hadn't thought about in a long time. When I stopped to think why I'm having this thought pattern, I realized that because my seating area was low and the plants around me were elevated and large, that it caused me to see myself as being smaller. It, it decreased the perceived scale of myself. And because of that, I think it really did cause me to kind of have those childhood memories, sort of getting in touch with the inner child. In my garden in Charlotte, at the highest point in the garden, I have a red bench and red's a power color. So I can sit up there and I look down on the rest of my garden. I sort of feel like I'm in charge, you know, and I feel larger. So my scale is enlarged. Then with the red color being an empowering color, it gives me that feeling of being re-energized and recharged. So those are two examples that I would say speak to that point. How does your garden in the mountains make you feel? Like I've gone to heaven, actually. <laughs> I don't like to leave here. Even in the winter area, when it's kind of dead, it's still beautiful. I have about, I don't know, 180 or so ornamental grasses in the front. And I leave those up till probably the middle of March. 
just watch them play with the wind because it gets very windy here. And they sort of dance and flirt with the wind. And I find that amusing and really calming in a way. This time of year, when I see the new plants emerge, I mean, I was just here five days ago and, and the, the amount of growth and emergence that's happened in the last four or five days is just amazing. I feel immersed. I feel enveloped. I feel like I'm dunked in magic. All of those are good things because I think the world beats us up between paying taxes and watching the news and being scared of COVID and what's going on in Russia and and all this kind of stuff. We need that place. Gardens are more important than ever. And I know nationally gardening is really seeing a resurgence in popularity since COVID because people sat at home and looked out at their yards and were like, wow, that looks really bad. They kind of had that yearning to reconnect and be immersed in nature. It's a really good thing. That and and less traffic during the pandemic were really the only two good points about it that I can come up with. In your designs, do you include a lot of native material? I do. If I have a choice between native and non-native, I'll almost always go with native. But I'm not one of these real staunch native people that think if you plant a daylily or hosta, you're going to hell. I think as an artist, I look at a garden as a canvas and I'm creating a composition on that canvas and I'm using different color paints and different techniques to do that. So if I need a blue needled conifer, for example, to finish that composition and there is no native blue needled conifer to where I am, I'm going to go buy it and I don't really care where it comes from as long as it does well in the garden conditions. How do you think plants, wildlife and people should interact in a garden? meaningfully. That's the word I always use because I think a garden is all about how people, plants and wildlife really all interact. A garden helps us appreciate nature in a way that people who never go to a garden, who live in a high rise or the proverbial concrete jungle just don't understand. Would you talk some more about your garden style? I tend to design gardens that are contemporary or Asian inspired. I have never been to Japan, so I don't tell people that I design Japanese gardens, but I think there are principles that we can gain from that because there's that peace and tranquility that Asian gardens tend to capture and encapsulate. People used to ask me for Zen gardens a lot. And finally, this one client asked me for a Hee Haw Zen garden, which you may remember that old country western variety show called Hee Haw. And I'm like, what the heck is a hee-haw Zen garden? And what I realized is that he just wanted a peaceful place to unwind. And he didn't know how to describe his feeling other than using the word Zen. Now I use Asian inspiration in a lot of my gardens, but I don't design strictly Japanese or Asian gardens. I think contemporary gardens and Asian gardens can use similar lines. And so they go together really well. We're a contemporary society, so I think that contemporary gardens are exciting. They're crisp, and they can be immersive. I just like that. In my area, people usually plant a lot of boxwoods and formosa azaleas and that sort of thing. I decided when I first started in this business that I was going to be different. I do occasionally use boxwoods or azaleas, but I'll use them in different ways. For example, in my garden in Charlotte, I have a sculpture garden in the woodland area. I use boxwoods and I clip them into balls and I intersperse them with stone spheres and I have them kind of rolling down the hill. It's perceived movement. I really like using boxwoods like that, but lining them up in front of a house really doesn't do anything for me. We just finished a really contemporary garden in a very exclusive area of Charlotte and we installed a reel of blue slag glass and it's underlit with LEDs. This big line of light blue underlit at night winds its way through the garden like a big snake. 
And everybody else in that neighborhood has azaleas and boxwood. So I told the client that if boxwood blight ever comes through this neighborhood, your garden will be the only one standing. Why do things the same when you can be different and just really honor the style and the unique individual that we all are? You said blue slag glass? Slag glass is chunks of recycled glass that have been colored and tumbled, so they're not sharp anymore. I wouldn't walk across them necessarily barefooted. They're not very sharp. It's kind of a neat thing to use, an industrial contemporary element. Not used as a path. What size is it? About 80 feet long and about 12 inches wide. And it just winds through the garden like a big light blue lit snake at night. Your eye follows that line. So it visually takes you where I want you to go. When your eyes go someplace pleasant, then your body always follows. You can really show people where to look and where not to look by having something that's exciting or unexpected. If you do that, it can really pull your eye away from eyesores like telephone poles and utility boxes. It's underlit. Mm -hmm. Okay. It is. And finding waterproof LED lights was not an easy thing. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine that wouldn't be. It's like rope lighting, but it's not the rope lighting you can buy on Amazon for $30. It's the $1,000 rope lighting. (laughs) Like you'd line a pool with maybe? Sort of. It's what people use in industrial signage to light signs like at the shopping centers. Interesting. Very interesting. You've been quoted that a good garden is a place where reality and fantasy collide and the imagination is set free to soar. Would you talk on that? I have to talk about Mary Poppins. Is that okay? Sure. Spit spot. Okay. So my story with Mary Poppins is about a dozen years ago, I was sitting on my sofa on a Saturday night by myself with a bottle of wine and thought, I'm going to watch Mary Poppins. When I got to the point where Mary and Bird and Jane and Michael jumped into the sidewalk chalk painting and were transported into an animated world, I just had this revelation that that's what a garden should be. It's where fantasy and reality collide. If you remember that part of Mary Poppins, I'm pretty sure most everybody's seen that movie. You will remember that there were bright primary colors in that animation. There were dancing penguins. There were carousel horses that came off of the carousel and joined into a fox hunt. And I thought, this is amazing. This is what a garden should be, where you completely forget about the outside world and focus on what's right in front of you. And so I call that immersion. It's kind of like being dipped into a big can of paint just frees you from the stresses of the day, from your problems, from the fight you had with your boss or your wife or your husband. And it transports you to a magical place where really you feel like anything is possible. It's an empowering thing. When you realize that anything's possible, you come out of that garden renewed as a stronger person. Is there a certain type of hardscape materials you like to use? We don't use artificially or man-made hardscape. We don't use concrete blocks. We really don't even use brick because we just don't do those kind of gardens. But I believe in using authentic materials. To me, if a garden really has its own personality and style, it should be composed of authentic materials. We don't really do concrete paver, three-level patios with outdoor kitchens and pergolas and hot tubs and all that. There's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want. I don't consider that a garden. I consider that an outdoor living space. We craft gardens, so we use materials that are authentic. I think stone is wonderful. It's been around for millions or billions of years, as opposed to the concrete paver that was manufactured in Nebraska last week and shipped over. There's no story. There's no authenticity to that. There is authenticity and a story to stone. 
to find wood. That's what we like to use. Stone and wood, is there any other authentic material you like? We use steel edging, which may not be really authentic, but I like the crisp lines of it. We'll cut boulders into it sometimes to break up that line, or we'll have low junipers kind of growing over it to soften that line. There's a good mixture of real sharp lines used in conjunction with authentic materials and then used with plants. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? Follow their hearts. Follow their style. Don't do what everybody else does. This is a problem I have with most HOA landscape committees. They really lack any sort of imagination generally. Find your style. Follow your style. Don't be afraid of trying new things. Don't be afraid of killing plants. Somebody told me once, I used to grow orchids, and somebody told me the only difference between me and a professional orchid grower is that I hadn't killed enough plants yet. I believe the same thing occurs in outdoor gardens. Try new things. There's some things that'll work, some things that won't work, some things that you'll like, some things that you won't like. In Charlotte, my garden kind of reads as the Chinese calendar. I had the year of the hosta, the year of the daylily, the year of the hookera, the year of the potophyllum, and on and on. Some of those trends didn't stick with me because of my interest kind of went in a different area. But it was fun to try new things. Try to introduce some sort of design element in there. Don't just line them up. A lot of people line things up like the cans of green beans at the grocery store. That's boring. Use your style, use your imagination, and don't be afraid to try things that other people don't do or don't try. What's your earliest garden memory? Probably walking with my grandmother when I was three or four through her vegetable garden and picking strawberries. Did she let you taste them or eat them before you got back to the house? Oh, yeah. And we had a pet tortoise that my grandfather painted our initials on the back of. And uh, I would give some to him. He tended to like the strawberries as well. What made you decide to pursue the garden design business? I was in another line of work. I used to design custom saltwater aquariums and install them. It was a good business until the economy crashed in 2008 and nine, And thought, instead of complaining like everybody else, I'm just going to be proactive and I had a lot of wealthy clients that had really bad yards. And so I just sort of started to, because they say, bloom where I was planted. I'd always designed gardens. I had always loved designs and loved plants, but I had done it for friends for free. And I thought, well, I'm just going to see if I can't make a business out of this. I know when I first started pretty much full time, I had this goal in my mind. I was going to be the best garden designer in Charlotte. And so about two years ago, when a magazine named me the most outstanding landscape designer in North Carolina, That really meant a lot to me because I had not only reached my goal, but I had surpassed my goal. The lesson behind that is find what you're good at and just keep plugging away at it and keep doing it. And if you're smart and if you're true to yourself, I think that uh, your dreams can come true. When I look at my life now, it's almost like a dream. I'm amazed that I get paid for what I do, that people like what I do, and that I can actually do what I love. Do you have a funny plant garden or landscape story? I had this art teacher call me about four years ago. It was a summer school kind of thing for 10-year-old art students. She originally wanted them to come and pick plants in my garden and take back and draw or paint in the classroom. And I said, that's definitely not going to happen. So then she said, well, can we come visit? And I'm like, I could just see these kids jumping off my boulders and and falling and, and getting hurt. But she was persistent. So I finally said, sure, come on. The day of, I was still not really looking forward to it. The kids showed up and the teacher real proudly told me that they had spent all morning studying historical botanical prints in anticipation of visiting my garden. You know, in the South, there's this term, bless your heart. And bless your heart can mean many different things. And if you're from some foreign country like Belgium or New Jersey or someplace, you may not understand that. 
in the South, we say, bless your heart. And so I'm looking at her. I'm like, bless your heart. Ten-year-old kids don't want to study historical botanical prints. And so they weren't too interested in the garden until I said, you know what? If you see in your mind a purple tree that's crawling across the ground, you need to draw that. Probably a precedent for it. It's probably real, not just in your mind, but probably in my garden. Because if you look around long enough among all these weird trees that I have, you probably can find a purple tree that's kind of crawling across the ground. And I said, don't let any adult ever steal your imagination or your joy from you. Paint what you see, paint what you love, paint what you can imagine. And they just came alive and the teacher just kind of cringed. And I don't think she was a big fan of mine after that. But I feel like I gave the kids that gift today. And I don't know how funny that story is, but that's a story that's very meaningful to me. And so I tell it a lot. I like that. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? We'll eliminate Mary Poppins right up front because she's probably it. I would say that there are three garden designers or landscape architects. I think all three actually are landscape architects, which I'm not, who've influenced me a lot. I'm going to leave Pete Udolph out of this. Everybody looks at him and gains inspiration. So since we all know that, I'm not going to mention him. I'd say the first one is Julie moyer Maservi. She's a landscape architect in Vermont. She wrote a book called The Inward Garden. That was an aha moment, kind of like Mary Poppins was. In that book, she talks about that we all have an ideal of a garden in our head. We all have that idea of paradise. Depending on what kind of person you are, you may see that paradise is on a mountaintop or nestled in a valley or on the beach. She talks about how to create the garden that you see in your mind. But how awesome is that? Because a garden really should be a manifestation of our imagination where fantasy and reality collide and we're free to soar. She would be the first one, Julie Moyer-Mercervi. Second one is Andrea Cochran, who is in the Bay Area of California. She does very contemporary gardens and she does a lot of gardens for wineries. They're beautiful and she's bold and she's not afraid to be bold and to be herself. Third one is Bernard Trainer, who's also in the Bay Area of California, who does a lot of naturalistic but contemporary gardens at the same time. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Uh, planting the wrong thing at the wrong place. As an artist, I'm going to plant this here because I need that color and that shape and that texture. I don't care if it's going to live or die, but I'm going to make it live. You can push nature, you can push plants a little bit. Past a certain point, they're just not going to cooperate. I have to temper that part of my artistic mind and just realize I need to plant things that are going to live because it's one thing if you plant it for yourself and it dies, but you start planting it for paying clients and it dies, it's a whole nother story. What have you recently learned that you didn't know regarding your gardens or horticulture? The way I would answer that would be I've learned not something like a scientific fact about plants, but I've just learned about what creates joy and excitement in people. That's kind of where I want to go with the rest of my life. I feel like that my purpose on the face of this earth, honestly, is to create as much beauty and magic per square inch as I can between now and whenever I die, whether it's 40 years or 10 days from now. I constantly feed on that, and that joy is what is important to me. I learn constantly about how to create joy by getting feedback from my clients and the people who view my gardens. Could you share a recent feedback? The blue slag glass garden. The client is so happy. She keeps sending me all these videos and pictures and little notes about how peaceful it is and how much she loves it. And that garden, I've never done anything like that before. I've been wanting to do it, but I just couldn't find the right person in the right place and the right budget. I think it's because we use ordinary material, which is basic cast off glass that's recycled and made something really beautiful out of it is important. And I would say that's also a metaphor for life. 
So when you walk out and you just see that recycled glass, it really speaks to the imagination. So yeah, using common elements in different ways. People, especially on Facebook, I kind of look down and read some of the comments when I post garden photos. I remember something a little while ago where somebody said, you should look at Jay Sifford's work. He uses very ordinary plants, but in spectacular, unexpected ways. It's true. When I started in the business, I wanted to use all these really exotic, hard to find plants. Well, that didn't last long because I drew them in a plan and sold the client on them. And then I couldn't find them. Started using lorapetalums and maybe a few hollies and junipers. Everybody has a bad juniper story in their life. I started using common plants, but I used them in different and innovative ways. A good lesson to learn, too, is just that you can use common things, but try to think outside the box and use them in different ways. What's the uncommon way to use a juniper? You can use it hanging over something interesting. You can use it incorporated into a sculptural composition or even just using masses of them as, as ground cover instead of just one or two. Junipers now are kinder and gentler than they used to be. We all remember getting stuck by them when we were playing kick the can or hide and seek as a kid. They're pretty good plants now by and large. You've already talked about your garden a lot, but I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. I have created magic. Please tell us how you did that. I've used a lot of unusual plants, like the Chinese podophyllums I mentioned earlier, the mayapples. Some of the leaves are up to 20 inches across. I tend to hide certain things along a path for people to find. Sometimes I will purposely allow a tree branch to lean over a pathway so that when somebody walks through, it will kind of tap them on the shoulder and it will cause them to turn around and look at some little thing that they probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. I think all those things create magic and make a garden larger than the sum of all of its parts. What are you applying to your garden this year that you learned from last year? I decided I hate weeds. Okay. <laughs> and weeds are basically any plant that you don't want in your garden. They can be a great plant to somebody else, but if you don't like it, it's probably a weed to you. What I've learned to do practically is that here every Saturday, I spend about 45 minutes weeding. I feel really sorry for the people who wait six months. Everything's overgrown and they go out and, and they try to weed then and they give up because they're hopeless at that point. If you just do a little bit every day or a little bit every week, it's not bad. And actually, it can be kind of cathartic. Sometimes I think about somebody I don't like face down there in that weed. I just pop it out of the ground and it kind of makes me feel good in kind of a sick way, I guess. Do things every day and you will find joy in those things. But if you wait six or eight months, you will find no joy. Trust me. <laughs> you find a lot of drudgery. <laughs> what are your future plans for your garden? It's pretty full. I tell people that I've always designed my own gardens as sort of like, what's the attraction for next year? Almost like a theme park. So this year we have a roller coaster. Next year we have a drop zone or something like that. And I've kind of gotten away from that. I think that my plans for my garden here are just to sit in the garden with coffee in the morning or wine in the afternoon and just watch things grow and watch them interact. And then if they get a little too feisty, just curb them a little bit, pull them out or, or, or prune them back. But I really don't have any new plans other than that and maybe filling in a few areas. Like my Russian sage, for example, it just rains too much up here. Even though I mended the soil, so I'm going to pull them out and plant something else. There's always editing, but I'm not sure that really fits into a grand plan like next year's roller coaster. What's your favorite plant in your garden? Uh, well, I do love the Chinese podophyllums, but I tell you, I have to probably say the rhododendron maximums. That's why I bought the property. 
when I was with my realtor initially, I said, I have two must-haves and one would like to have. And the two must-haves were I needed a stream with rapids and I need a whole bunch of rhododendron. And then the other one was I wanted to be in a state-maintained paved road. None of this gravel zigzagging up the hill. I have to say the rhododendrons because they transport me to another place. Ferns transport me to another place. And that's part of the magic. You know, you can look at the rhododendrons and the ferns and close your eyes. And when you open them, you could just as well think you are in British Columbia or a jungle someplace or in Europe. That's part of the magic of transporting yourself. And a garden can help you do that. Just really increase the imagination, that sort of thing. Yeah, rhododendrons and then probably the ferns and the Chinese mayapples are my favorite. Where the ferns take you? Ferns take me to bliss is where they take me. <laughs> when you go to British Columbia or Washington State and you're just hiking through the forest, the, the western sword ferns and others, they're everywhere and they're huge. Ostrich ferns are probably about my favorite. And they're happy where I plant them. They get to about four feet tall. And it's sort of that same feeling like you're hiking through the forest in Washington or British Columbia. What are your other go-to ferns? Oh, gosh. Somebody asked me once my 10 favorite ferns. I stumbled. So let's see. We have ostrich ferns. I love northern maidenhair ferns. I love Himalayan maidenhair ferns. Those are underused and, and really awesome. I like cinnamon ferns. I like heart's tongue fern. I like ghost fern. I like Japanese painted fern. Dixie wood ferns are awesome. They can get really big, too, if they're happy. I just like ferns. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I like them, too. I was trying to get some helpful hints here. <laughs> but what you need to realize about ferns is you need to really analyze where you're going to plant them. So if you have a wet spot or a consistently moist spot or a sunny spot or a dry spot, you really have to determine what's there. So if you have a wet spot and you plant a tassel fern, for example, it's probably going to rot because the hairs on the stem is going to hold too much moisture in the winter. They need to be planted up on a slope or someplace where they stay moist but not wet. If you have a wet spot, cinnamon ferns, royal ferns, ostrich ferns, sensitive ferns, all those are really good. My ferns in Charlotte, the ostrich ferns, four feet tall, they're in full afternoon sun, but they are in boggy soil. The ones I have in dry shade, instead of being four feet tall, are about 12 inches tall. Really, with ferns, depends on your location and the conditions within that location. There's a fern for just about everybody. You've got some photographs coming up for your gardens for different magazines. So how does that work? So I do have two magazines coming in July to photograph the front stylized meadow garden, which actually is my septic field. It used to be wooded. Now it's pretty much full sun. So it's a great opportunity to do something different. And it's gained a lot of attention, number one, because it's on top of a septic field. And number two, it's a real highly stylized meadow. I look forward to seeing those. We had to cut down a bunch of trees and I never had a full sun garden before and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. It's awesome and it has a lot of four season interest with the conifers and twig dogwoods and sangococo maples and stuff in the winter. That's kind of amazing to me that you never had a full sun garden. Now I've designed them for other people, but I've never owned one. I've always lived under the trees. That's where I'm comfortable, under the trees. Yeah, I love trees myself and my house is a lot cooler because of all the trees I got around the house. I never understood why people would buy a house and then cut down all the trees around it. Some people that think trees are too much maintenance, and they are, you know, you've got to rake leaves or blow leaves, and you've got to pressure wash your deck more often because you'll get algae growing on and that sort of thing. There's real beauty in the shadows, and this is what I learned a long time ago is the light's beautiful, but when the light interacts with the darkness and creates shadows, that's where the magic is. That's where the mystery is. That's where the intrigue is. Life in the shadows isn't such a bad thing. Plus, you don't get sunburned. 
Jay, tell us how people may connect with you. My website, SiffordGardenDesign.com. Or if they want to look on Facebook, they can look me up there. I also have a mountain house, which is where I am right now. And I have a Facebook page for that called Roadwood, as in rhododendron woodland, as I have about 500 native rhododendrons here. So it's Roadwood on Facebook, and they can look me up there as well. This has been Episode 56, Cornerstones of a Great Garden with Jay Sifford. Thank you, Jay. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.